0: Thank you, Yvonne. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you that you are good, that you are full of love and compassion. I pray that you would open our eyes to see you more clearly in Jesus' name. Amen? All right, 1 John chapter 4 says in verse 18, But there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. We know that part of it, right? But let's read the whole verse. Because... Fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And so this phrase, these statements, this verse right here, there is no fear, none, in love. In fact, here's a beautiful thing. Perfect love drives out fear, like it can't coexist. And then it links up this beautiful piece right here that's so fascinating. Fear has to do with punishment. But there is no fear in love. So the children of God no longer need to fear punishment. And we can look at this verse and hear those phrases and go, wait, 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 just a minute. Aren't we supposed to, you know, fear God? And, and when we mess up, doesn't God, like, punish our sin? And so just a quick thought on that before we get into the rest. Um, the fear of God, as it's used in other places in Scripture, is not the same as being afraid of God. And sometime we'll actually spend uh, some weeks unpacking what all of that means. Um, but in short, uh, the fear of God, as it's referenced in other places in Scripture, it's not being afraid of God. It has to do more with reverence and seeing God who he really is and, and his magnificence and his, his, his beauty. And we have this reverence. We have this awe of him. But, but we have no need, friends, to be afraid of God as his children. We're not supposed to be afraid And on that whole punishment thing, I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. Here's a quick clarification between discipline and punishment. See, discipline is to help you learn, right? Punishment is to make you pay. So there might be times as God's kids where he disciplines us and helps us learn, he helps us grow. But according to scripture, the New Testament says that we don't need to fear punishment as his children anymore because there is no fear in love and again perfect love drives out fear and i hear that and wouldn't wouldn't you just love to live fear free yes. especially when it comes to your relationship with god fully living in his love no fear just able to live loved Well, we're in our third week in our all-church study of the book, The Cure, written by our friend John Lynch, and what we do on Sundays is we cover a theme from the next chapter, and then on Wednesday nights, we've been coming together, it's about 40 or so of us have been coming here to Hope, to go deeper in discussing and talking about the truths here, and the first couple weeks have been super fun on Wednesdays, and I think they've been really helpful for us to help clarify our faith in Christ and, and to see how His grace changes everything. Now, last week, we looked at our tendency to hide and to live behind a mask. Uh, Check this video out here.
1: Life with a mask is making a statement about me. We have found this reality that once I become a Christian, I have this almost desperate desire to be known. And then because I've only known shame, I'm afraid I will be known. And so even as a Christian, because I don't trust who God says I am, I wear a mask. Initially what happens is we feel like we're making improvements on our life and sin issues. And initially it's, hey, this is really working. I'm doing great. And then what happens is I realize that I've got to now project to everybody how great I'm doing. And so my living behind the mask gives me a sense of I'm doing okay, but then I begin to realize I'm not doing okay, but I don't know how to tell anybody that I'm not doing okay, so I live behind the mask and eventually I become in bondage to the sin and my life gets defined by my not doing okay. Those who love me, unfortunately, they only get to love my mask. I've learned that if I wear the mask and nobody really knows who I am, then I can hide what I'm doing from anyone, including those I love. When I live behind my mask, I literally have the freedom to not be known. And when I have the freedom to not be known, my shame will lead me into choices that will destroy me and those that love me. Now to live without the mask is to live in in relationship with God and others where everything about me can be known. One of the emphases we put on who it is that God made me is that in Christ He's made me holy which means because of that I actually can be invited by God to walk in the light and can in fact walk in the light. Look, it can all be known about you and you won't be loved less for it. You'll be loved more for it. And only then can I truly be loved for who I am. And oh, by the way, when I am loved well, I will sin less. What if our messages were no longer messages of condemnation that fed the shame, but what if they were messages of hope that gave people the freedom to live out of who God says they are? In our opinion, it radically changes the way people do life, church, family, and quite honestly, the way the message of the gospel is shared.
0: I love that phrase that he closed with, uh, messages of hope. He said, what if that's what the message is? And I want that to be our message here, a message of hope that gives people the freedom to live out of who God says that they are. And so this this week, we're going to look closer at our view of God. We're going to look at, you know, what kind of God is God? Is he he angry? Is the face of God angry and vindictive and kind of pushy? Um, disappointed? Or is God the kind of God that we see reflected in the life and character of Jesus? Is he a God full of strength and compassion, unconditional love, fierce protection for the weak? Is he a God of kindness and grace? See, there's two different ways that we can approach how we worship in God, even after we become followers of Jesus. And again, we tend to run back and forth between these sometimes sometimes. Do we worship a God who keeps us living in shame? Because when we see God through that grid, like we're living in shame, then it will impact all kinds of things about how our life plays out. Um, When we see him through that grid, it really, really changes things. In in the book, The Cure, that we're reading, one character asks another, um, hey, are you still believing in the God that your shame created, the God you've learned to fear? To fear? Are you learning, is that how you're worshiping? And that's a great question for us. Are we worshiping a God that we've kind of learned to be afraid of? So are we worshiping that God, this God of shame, this angry God? Or have we begun to see and do we worship the God of grace full of unconditional love where we actually get rid of all the lenses and filters and we see God as he actually is? So the question again is, do we worship a God who keeps us in shame or do we worship a God who frees us from shame to live in grace, to live out of who he declares us to be. See, um, I think it's normal for lots of us to think, well, okay, listen, when I came to Jesus and and I committed my life to him, it's like, okay, wonderful, sure, God saved me, right? And that's amazing grace, and I'm grateful for that. But now what do we do? Like, do we know once we become believers and we're children of God, um, do we know? Like, is Jesus truly delighted with you? Like, how does God actually see you? How does the Father actually see you? There's this compelling statement in in The Cure that I think, um, I had to think about this one for a while, but I think it's really powerful. It says this, your view of God, I'm sorry, your view of you is the greatest commentary on your view of God. And what this statement means is is how I see myself as a Christian, that's going to explain why I see God the way that I see God. So again, if I see God through this lens of shame where he's this angry, punishing deity who I need to tiptoe around to make sure that I don't take him off, then that reveals the way I see myself is not as an adored child of God. It's a slave. Um, if my view of God is, is that he's petty, he's insecure, he's wanting to smack me upside the head every time that I screw it up, that actually reveals that that I don't believe that he calls me his beloved child. But if my view of God is one where I see him as a good father, that I'm deeply and unconditionally loved. And, and as Colossians one twenty seven says, that that as a Christian, you are Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's who you are. Christ in you is the deepest truth about you. If I see it that way, then I think it does... Reveal that I actually do trust God, that I trust that what he says about me is true. And it might even show that that I can start to believe that he is the loving God that Jesus reveals him to be. But I think if we're honest, um, we all struggle with our view of God. We struggle with our view of ourselves. I struggle with believing what God says is is true about me and, and, and about you. And I think that's why it's so easy for so many Christians to revert back to living out of fear, right? We're afraid of God. We don't want to displease Him. So we spend all our energy trying to manage our sin. So instead of living loved, instead of believing that God's love is real, we actually turn to living in fear. Now when I look back at human history and I look at, at religious Systems throughout the ages, it seems like this fear perspective is our default perspective. I mean, people in all times and places and cultures and all religions seemingly operate from this, this place of fear. Um, see, way back in the story, way back in the story, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, The serpent suggested that God was not really for humanity, but actually God was against the human species. He was suggesting that, you know, well, listen, God doesn't have any interest whatsoever in the fulfillment of the human race or a loving relationship with people. He was suggesting that God had nothing but indifference, maybe even contempt for us. In the Garden of Eden, the serpent came. You know the story. He came, he tempts Eve, and and Adam, by the way, because the Hebrew says he was standing right next to her, shoulder to shoulder, right? But Genesis 3 describes that scene this way. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, "'Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden?' The woman said to the serpent, "'We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden.'" you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, said the serpent to the woman. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And most of us know the rest of the story, right? But but in this scene here of temptation, what the enemy is doing is he's planting a doubt planting a doubt in our hearts. Is God really good? Is the heart of God really good? Is it really? And fear took hold of the human heart. And it was rooted in there. As the con- story continues, you remember what, what Adam says when later God asked him, hey, where are you? And a- Adam answered, I was afraid, right? So I hid So there we go. This is where fear jumps into the story. Welcome to fear. John Claypool, author, says that suspicion of God's character is at the root of all human sinfulness. See, I think he's right. Is the heart of God really for you? Is the heart of God even good? I think it's a question that we wrestle with um, almost every day, really. Can I trust God, or do I need to hide and cover? Like, is this whole thing about living in love, or is it about living in fear? If we look back at even pagan stories and mythology from from other cultures that lived at the same time as our biblical era of history, uh, it reveals that this was rampant everywhere, this whole fear thing. Um, people just viewed the gods and God as 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 negatively, right? The deity was negative, and and fast forward to Jesus, when Jesus was on earth telling stories about what God is really like, um, he knew that the pervasive theology of the day was that the gods don't care about humans, and the gods are actually hostile toward people. He knew he was coming into that worldview, right? And the truth is, not just way back then, but even today, much of the world believes that if there is something out there, that that something either doesn't care for us much at all, or if it does care about us, only in very negative ways. Well, way back in the history, um, one of the most famous pagan myths was about a lesser god named Prometheus. It's probably a story that everybody would have known in Jesus' day because the Roman culture had taken over there. And, and in this myth... Um, Prometheus looked down, he was one of the gods, he looked down from Mount Olympus, he saw humans stumbling around in the dark and in the cold, and somehow this situation evoked compassion in him. So he went and he took some fire from the altar of heaven, he brought it down to the human race so they could have fire, so they could be illuminated, they could be warmed. However, when the king god, Zeus, discovered what Prometheus had done, he was furious. See, Prometheus had violated one of the laws of heaven, which was that no god should ever feel compassion for earth. So Prometheus was punished by being chained to a rock, a vulture eating endlessly at his insides. This is a story that was such a great example about how people feared deity, that, that what happened to humans didn't matter much at all to the gods. This is how the pagans felt about gods, and frankly, how many Jews felt about our god, Yahweh. But when, when, when Jesus told these parables when he was here on earth that described God as a God of compassion, a, a God of love, when, when he told the story of the, 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 the vineyard workers, the parable of the persistent widow, the, the parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and, and the lost, the prodigal son, when Jesus did that, he was coming against this fearful notion of God that was embraced by the culture, both Jews and Gentiles alike. See, Jesus knew that this core fear that we have as a human race, that core fear is an obstacle to what God longs for most with people. And what He longs for most with us is a loving relationship. And so the whole life of Jesus demonstrates that God is a God of mercy and tenderness. And it also revealed some things about how Judaism had devolved over over the centuries and become a religion that was aimed at following every nuance of the law in order to try to stay on God's good side. Uh, A God, by the way, who the people mostly seemed to fear. It was kind of like, listen, keep God happy. Let's stay out of his way so you don't get squashed. I mean, it's how they would approach, it's how the people would approach relationship with God if that relationship was built on fear, Like, hey, look out, he's gonna get you, which is really sad. But the truth is, it wasn't just them back then, that lingers for us as well. John Lynch calls it the Santa Clauses come into town theology. John said, We created Santa Claus because, well, we couldn't handle God. And the truth is, we can't handle Santa Claus. Now, this originated this originated with John, but I've heard other people borrow this, this uh, as well. But, but John says about the Santa Claus theology, hey, we made Santa all jolly, chubby and sassy, but the truth is the guy's a controlling legalist with almost unlimited power. Think about the, the Santa Claus song, right? You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's, um, he's making a list, and then he's checking it uh, twice, um, you know, maybe three or four times for Dalton or Bruce or Jim here, but, um, <laughs> but he's going to find out who's naughty or nice because he's coming to town, right? I mean, this whole song, it just sounds a little bit like me when I read it this way without the, the pretty melody in the back. It sounds a little like fear-mongering, right? Think about this, how, how, little kids... They're so scared the first time, most of them, the first time they jump on Santa's lap, like they're scared to death, right? They're crying? Well, of course. This is the song they've heard. They know, right? (laughs) And then later they figure, ooh, I got to kiss up so I get a good present, so then they play along, right? But next line of the song, he sees you when you're sleeping, which is wrong, okay? I don't want anybody watching me when I'm sleeping, okay? That's not okay. And he knows when you're awake. Like... Friends, don't we call that stalking, right? (laughs) That's not okay, right? That's like restraining order material in my book. Okay. Uh, He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good. Um, For goodness sake. There it is, right there. Our culture created it, and we sing it as a holiday song, and maybe we kind of believe it. Even more sad is the truth is, I think this Santa deal might be a little more like we imagine God treats us. We we can believe the lie that with God, just like with Santa, that your value is on how much you do right and how little you do wrong. And he's constantly writing down the wrongs that you've done for future reference, so he can bring it up again. He's keeping track, he's gonna find out, and oh, this omniscient, controlling legalist, he's coming to town. So you better watch out. You better, you better fear this guy. You better just act like you're fine no matter how you feel because you're constantly on trial. Don't pout. Don't snivel. Put on a good face. Act like you're somebody better than you actually happen to be. You all need to perform and put on a really good show. Just be better than you are for, <clears throat> for, for goodness sake. See, with, with God, I think... It's easy for us to believe the lie that if we want good things to happen in our life, we better figure out how to keep that guy pleased. We better figure out how to keep God pleased. Again, let's look back at the quote from Bill Thrall in our book, The Cure, that I used earlier. Your view of you is the greatest commentary on your view of God. So how I see myself as a Christian will explain why I see God the way I do. So if I see God as this overpowering, controlling, omniscient legalist that reveals that I'm not really seeing the true God that exists. He's this angry, punishing deity. Don't make him upset. Just do the right thing. We're missing out on who he really is. If he is trying to smack us upside the head, we're missing it, my friends. Like, Can we dare to believe and to see God as someone who loves that God loves adores and desires to be around you because when we can embrace that truth that God really loves you that much it reveals that we're beginning to live a life a life without this lens or this filter of shame this filter of punishment It reveals when we start to believe who God says we are as his children that we are actually beginning to trust that God is love and that he loves me. But again, so many times it's so easy. It's just kind of wired into us, I think, in our culture, in our Christian culture, and we revert back to this old way of thinking that was programmed in us before we were made new. I mean, we hear it in... in, and how people talk about their faith oftentimes. Um, there's a popular saying that Christians like to use. Uh, I know that I've said it before, um, but on further reflection more recently, I'm like, huh, I don't know about this. And the phrase is this, well, God knocked me off my horse. <laughs> that was the only way he could get my attention. Now, I'm a little thick-headed, so <laughs> that's, that's believable, right? But, but I just thought about this a little more. And, and you know, this comes from the story where, where um, Saul before he became Paul the Apostle. Before that, he was murdering Christians, and, and he was a very religious man, right? And so he's on the road to Damascus. He's going to go kill some more people, and he, we think he got knocked off his horse, but actually he wasn't probably riding a horse. It just says he fell down. So, but it's, you know, it sounds good. It sounds more fun to say he got knocked off his horse, right? Um, but I even think about that picture of Saul getting kind of knocked to the ground by the power of God. And I, and I have to ask, is that how God regularly gets our attention, right? That he smacks me upside the head, that he kind of knocks me down, Right? I mean, I understand that notion, that interpretation of events, that interpretation, right? Because I'm sure that when something difficult gets uh, one of our attention in life, right, when, when something really difficult gets our attention in an area that we do need to address, that it might, be able, easy to, uh, it might be easy to interpret that as that God did this thing to me through my life circumstance, that he knocked me off my horse or smacked me upside the head. But, but I wonder... When we arrive with that sort of interpretation, what does that interpretation say about our view of God? That God knocked me off my horse, right? What would that say? Let's even turn to somebody next to you for a minute here, and what would that say? God knocked me off my horse. Okay, then how do we see God? Just turn to the person next to you, you got 30 seconds, just throw out a couple of phrases here. There we go. I need I need some game show music. All right, so give me, uh, throw a few out here. Um, what does that say about our view of God if He knocked us off our horse or smacked us upside the head? Someone, yeah. punishment. He's a god of punishment. Bully. He's a bully. Yeah, could be seen that way. Yeah, a knock, a, knock a, a knock off a hurt. It does hurt. Yep, yep. Seems seems awfully aggressive. Harsh. Anyone else? Harsh. Yep. Angry. Yep. Sovereign. Sovereign. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. What else? Controlling. Yeah. Yep. See. See. Our view of God. Well, you knocked me off my horse. Uh, wow. Wow. Just. I just encourage us to rethink some of these phrases. How. It's really. It's how we interpret what happens to us. The same person can interpret the same thing different ways. And if our lens of God is, oh, we better be scared, then sure, that totally makes sense. But if our view of God is for who he is and who he says we are, then we might see those things a little differently. I mean, even the whole idea that, you know, okay, well, how we interpret um, when someone says that God took my child, God took my spouse, God took my Parent, God took my friend, and again, friends, I don't want to be unkind, because I know we all have to wrestle through these hard questions of why when we encounter these painful things in our life, but but our interpretation of these things can be tragic, and they can cause us to see God through a lens of pain or shame or fear, and that's just not helpful if we really want to have this free, loving, intimate relationship that he offers us. Or here's another one. This is one that I'm wrestling through. I don't claim to have all the answers on any of this stuff. But, but I hear well-meaning Christians say, um, you know, God is really breaking me. And again, I don't want to discount all these viewpoints at all. But ultimately, though, what does that say about their view of God? And, and maybe even what agreements are they making with stuff that's not actually a part of the character of God? Like, I've listened to some incredible people talk about God breaking them, people who love God, who, who know God better than I do, who probably have a more intimate relationship with God than I do. They serve God with more devotion and dedication than I do. But when I hear that phrase, as I did recently from more than one friend who I admire, saying, well, God is breaking me, I just, something moved in my heart, and I started to wonder. Like, one of them said... God is breaking me of my pride and fierce independence. He's making me depend on others and be more humble. Now, that's all really good stuff, right? Getting rid of pride and fierce independence, beginning to trust other people to open our hearts in humility. That's all really good. We want to be free of that stuff. But our interpretation, right? I wonder, I wonder, I just wonder. When stuff in me gets exposed, and I see that I'm arrogant, that I see that I'm too independent, that I'm not allowing others to enter into my life, when I see that stuff and even feel conviction about it, my response is, wow, I don't want to live that way. I want to be freed from that stuff. Like, I don't want to be arrogant and shut other people out of my life. So here's what I wonder, right? Instead of seeing the pain that comes or the stuff that happens in our life as God is breaking me, me, instead of seeing it that way, what if I started to see it as God is healing me? God is healing me. Romans 8, 28, again. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now It doesn't say that God causes all things. It says that he works in all things for our good. And so I wonder, even when painful stuff happens that gets our attention, Maybe he's just taking all the stuff that happens and finding ways to work it toward our good. Like, he's not causing it to break us, but he's using it to heal us, right? To heal me of my arrogance and my pride so that I do look more and more like who he declares me to be, Christ in Doug, the hope of glory. So I I think the shift in how we view God and how we view ourselves makes a huge difference. Instead of seeing myself as this horrible sinner who can barely get it right ever, which, by the way, might be a very accurate description if someone were to watch from the outside and see my actions, but, but instead of acting like the truest, deepest thing about me is that stuff and that God has to break me, what if the truest thing about me is that all that junk my pride my arrogance my unbelief my idolatry my my sin my anger my lust all that junk it's not consistent with the true me the me that god declares me to be and when i start seeing that i am a beloved child of god and that god calls me a saint when I see that stuff as the truest thing, then when the garbage stuff gets revealed, it's not that God's breaking me like this taskmaster or a slave driver or, or maybe like an earthly parent tried to do for some of us. No, no, no. He's, he isn't breaking me. He's healing me. See, friends, that's the heart of Jesus. That is the heart of our Father God for you and for me. And don't you want to just love Jesus more intimately? Don't you want to know Jesus like that? To set aside our fearful, skittish, nervous, shame based view of God and ourselves and to enter into a relationship with God as He really is. See, one of the ways for us to begin to see God as He truly is is to begin to believe what He says is true. About you and me, yeah. nothing that you and I believe depends. I um, think there's there's a truth that's more freeing than maybe anything uh, that that I'll say today, and it, and it comes from the book we're studying, The Cure. Here's the truth: you are no longer who you were, even on your worst day. Trusting and leaning upon Christ in you is the source of every shred of strength joy, healing, and peace. Trusting that he really is in you. If you have said yes to Jesus, if you've committed your life to him, you are, according to the Bible, you are a saint. You are a child of God. Christ lives in you. You are righteous. You are holy. You are loved. You are blameless, even on your worst day. Even on your worst day, those things are true. Those incredible truths are what's true about you and I as Christians, because that's who God declares us to be. In fact, when you leave today, the two round tables in the middle have some printouts, and there's two things on there. It's going to be a whole page of just different scriptures about who you are in Christ, who your identity is. And on the flip side of it is going to be something we're going to close with called the New Testament Gamble. But pick that up on your way out and look at these truths about who God says that you are, who I am. Because when we see these things more clearly about who we really are, it removes some of these filters and shame grids. It helps us to actually then finally see God for who he truly is rather than this vindictive, angry God who's ready to punish anyone who steps out of line and, or, or a God who demands nothing less than sinless perfection for us and from us, we start to see God as he truly is. A God like Jesus talked about in one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Luke 15. He tells a story, God is like a woman who is looking for a lost coin and she is sweeping till she finds it. And God is like a God who is a shepherd who goes and finds that, leaves he leaves the 99 sheep behind to go find the one lost sheep. Then he throws it on his shoulders. He comes back rejoicing. That's the kind of God God is. And that God is the kind of God who is, who's like a father, whose son wandered away and was gone for a long time and blew it big time But our God is the kind of God that when that wayward son returned, he saw him in the horizon and he took off running as soon as he came into view because, friends, God is wildly, madly, crazy in love with you. See, God is so in love with us that he took the greatest gamble of all into this world. God so loved this world that he sent Jesus He sent Jesus into this world that was gripped by fear. He he sent Jesus to change everything about how people get made right and can come into relationship with God because God is love and in him there is no fear because there is no fear in love because perfect love drives out fear. And that's such good news because from the time of Adam and Eve in the garden, we humans had handed the reins of our planet over to the enemy, and so the world was completely ruled by fear. But our God, who is love, (laughs) he wouldn't leave us to live that way, and he sent Jesus to change everything. John Lynch calls it the New Testament gamble. Check this out.
2: What if I tell them who they are? What if I take away any element of fear and condemnation or judgment or rejection? What if I tell them that I love them and that I will always love them and that I can't love them anymore and I love them right now and that I love them right now no matter what they've done as much as I love my only son? That there's nothing they can do to make my love go away? What if I told them there are no lists? What if I told them that they were righteous with my righteousness right now? What if I told them they could stop beating themselves up, that they could stop being so formal and stiff and weird and jumpy around me? What if I told them I was absolutely crazy about them? What if I told them that even if they ran to the ends of the earth and did the most unthinkable, horrible things and were unfaithful in their marriage, when they came back, I'd receive them with tears in a party? What if I told them that I do not keep a log of past offenses of how little they pray, how often they've let me down or made promises that they don't keep? What if I told them they don't have to be owned by men's religious additions or traditions? What if I told them that if I'm their savior, they're going to heaven no matter what, it's a done deal. What if I told them they had a new nature, saints, not saved sinners who should now buck up and be better if they were any kind of Christian, that's all I've done for you. What if I told them that I actually live in them now, that I put my love and power and nature inside them at their disposal? What if I told them they don't have to put on a mask at any time? that it is absolutely okay to be exactly who they are at this moment with all their junk and not have to pretend about how close we are, how much they pray or don't, how much the Bible they read or don't, and what if they knew that they they, they don't have to look over their shoulder for fear, if if things get too good, the other shoe's going to drop. What if they knew that I will never, ever, ever, ever use the word punish in relation to them? What if they knew when they mess up i never get back at them? What if they were convinced that bad circumstances are never my way of evening the score for taking advantage of me? What if they knew the basis of our friendship was not on how little they sinned, but on how much they let me love them? What if they had permission to stop trying to impress me in any way? What if I told them they could hurt my heart, but I'd try to never hurt theirs? What if I told them that I kind of like Eric Clapton's music too? That the these and the vows have always bugged me? What if I told them I never really liked their Christmas handbell deal with a white glove? What if I told them that they could open their eyes when they pray and still go to heaven? What if I told them there was no secret agenda, no trap door? What if I told them it wasn't about their self ever, but allowing me to live my life through them? That's the New Testament gamble!
0: Amen. Amen. See, what if <laughs> before God sent Jesus... He did it. He took away every element of fear and condemnation, of judgment and rejection, and to make sure that we knew that he loved us, that he always loved us, that nothing could make that go away, that he was absolutely crazy about us. Friends, the gospel is good news. It's good news. It's even better than we could have imagined because there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. And this is the reality of the kingdom of God, the story of God, the story that Jesus invites us into. See, unlike the pagan notion of the gods and even what we sometimes think of our God, God is not far off, he's not aloof, he's not waiting to crush you. And unlike maybe some of our earthly fathers, God's not simply putting up with you or annoyed with your presence, or your problems, or your failure to get your act together. No, no, in the story that we live in, God is our Father, He is gracious, kind, and compassionate. And you, if you will just say yes to following Jesus with your life and receive Christ, you can instantly become a child of the King in this kingdom. And this is important for all of us to hear, Remember, friends, this is not a kingdom of fear. It's a kingdom of love. See, see, a child can live in the love, the deep love of the Father. We can live in love trusting that our God is for us, knowing that whatever comes our way, fear will never win out. And it's a new way for some of us to live. And it happens when we begin to believe what God says is true about us, and we believe what is true about him. Because there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out all fear. Worship team, will you come? Some of you are um, maybe here this morning. Um, Maybe it's your first time here. Maybe you've been here a bunch of times. Maybe even something clicked for you in this hour And maybe you came here looking for a connection with God, and maybe you just know, you just knew you needed something more in your life, Um, and something happened in in our time together, and you know that you're ready, Um, you know that Jesus is who you want in your life. Maybe your heart's being drawn to him. Maybe you wouldn't have words for it, but, but that's what he's doing, and you're saying, yes, I need, I need this. I need to be free of fear and to live in the love of God. And some of you have never made that commitment before, um, but you're here this morning, and you know that this is your time. Um, you're ready to now say yes to Jesus to begin a relationship with him. God might even be tugging at your heart in this moment right now. And, and if he is... Um, You need to know that moments like this are really important, really important, because some of you, God is calling you in this moment to make that commitment to him right now to say yes to the love of God for the first time. And we want to give you a chance to do that. So I'm going to ask everybody here, if you would bow your heads for a moment, and I'm going to lead in a prayer. And if you've never made that decision, but you're ready to right now. I'm going to ask that you say these words in your heart or quietly with me as I, in fact, let's all say them together um, just to even encourage those that that haven't done this before. Let's all say this um, prayer together out loud. Um, God, thank you for guiding my steps today. I see that you're my only hope, so I choose you. I cannot make it on my own. So I choose you. I turn from sin and fear. And I choose you. I choose to trust Christ as my only hope. And God thank you for your perfect love. Amen. If you just keep your eyes.